Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People gift card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem at any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Otto English is the pen name for journalist Andrew Scott. Andrew has written for Politico, The Independent, New Statesman and The Daily Mail. Otto English is the author of the best-selling book, Fake History. And today I'm talking to Andrew Scott about his new book, Fake Heroes, 10 False Icons and How They Altered the Course of History. Andrew Scott, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. Before we talk about some of the candidates that are nominated as fake heroes in your book, we have to talk about what makes a hero. Now, the opening pages of Fake Heroes describes one heroic act by a rather unwilling hero, Wesley Autry. What was it about Wesley Autry that made him worthy of the first mention in Fake Heroes? That's a very nice place to start. It's a very good question. So in January 2007, on the New York subway, um, this guy, Wesley Autry, who was just a builder, like a labourer in New York City, was taking his two daughters across town uh, and he was on the subway and he witnessed a guy have a seizure and kind of very long story short, the guy eventually fell in front of uh, into the tracks. And almost as soon as he fell into the tracks, uh, a train started roaring through the tunnels down towards uh, the station. And this guy who had never met the other person before, apart from a brief interaction on the station. He was a guy called Cameron Hollopeter. He was a young student, a um, uh, film student in New York. This guy, Wesley Autry, without a care for himself or anyone around him, leapt from the station platform in front of this train and grabbed this guy, Cameron, rolled him into a drainage ditch as the train roared over the top of them and saved his life. It is the most extraordinary act of bravery. And it was a story that I was very dimly aware of. It was one of those things you read about years and years ago. I probably even read about it at the time or or shortly thereafter. And it just stayed with me. Um, And actually going back and investigating the story and reading in depth about the life and times of uh, Wesley Autry and what subsequently happened, I saw like the perfect arc of a hero narrative, if you like. What happened next is that America did what America always does, and it latched onto this guy and turned him into a massive celebrity. He met Donald Trump, who was then just uh, the host of The Apprentice TV show and a well-known businessman. He met President Bush. He was, he was like held up as this extraordinary American figure. Uh, and so I was interested in why America latched onto him, why they built him up, and then why he came crashing back down again, but also the characteristics of what makes somebody do something extraordinary like that and save a stranger's life. All of those things fascinated me, so I thought it was a good place to start the book. You identify that narrative arc in all of the fake hero candidates in your book, but you also raise two important terms, monomyth and kleos. Why are these two words so important in explaining the notion of the hero? So the monomyth is something that a man called John Campbell came up with in the 1940s. 
he wrote a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces about how pretty much all heroes have roughly the same narrative arc, whether it's Indiana Jones, whether it's Spider-Man, whether it's you or me going to the supermarket with a hangover. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like the, same, the same hero arc uh, plays out over and over again. In the case of Wesley Autry, as I demonstrate in the book, in a matter of minutes, really, uh, the first large part of his monomyth played out. You know, he jumps into the unknown, he performs a heroic act, he slays a monster, which is basically defeating the train. He, he does all those things, and you can see that in, in all these other stories and legends. I thought it was a good way to set up the book, because I thought, well, obviously, all these people will have a similar narrative arc. And then it really, really did take place. I mean, whoever you were looking at, whether it was Kennedy, whether it was Che Guevara, whether it was Mother Teresa or Calcutta, unbelievably, they all have this sort of narrative arc to their stories, to the point where you think, am I just searching for that narrative arc? Or, and that's something else which I tackle in the book. Uh, something called apophenia, where you start looking for a pattern where there is no pattern. Kleos is this thing which goes way back to the Hellenic Greeks and, and probably beyond. It's the sort of characteristics of a hero, what would you call it, the heroic juice in a human being that turns people into heroes. And if you go back into antiquity, human beings have always longed for heroes with heroic qualities it's the origin of saints, really, and the Greek heroes, you know, the idea that somebody will be watching over you. In the book, I, I talk about how you get this even with rock stars. Uh, just two days ago, uh, just down the road from me in Beckenham, which is like a suburb of London you've probably never even heard of, there's a pub called the, which was once a pub called the Three Tons, uh, which is now a ZZ Pizza restaurant. And uh, it's where David Bowie began his career. Uh, and, and for four years, every Saturday night, he he played there. When Bowie died in 2016, I think it was, 2015, that became like a shrine. It became like a place of pilgrimage. And in fact, as a Bowie fan myself, I've never been. It's only three miles away. And my son loves Bowie. I, I thought, we'll go on a pilgrimage <laughs> to the ZZ Pizza restaurant. And by doing that, you're kind of uh, continuing a long tradition of hero worship. Let's talk about some of the candidates made the list. They include Douglas Bader, uh, JFK, Che Guevara, Mother Teresa, Andy Warhol, Coco Chanel, Robert Falcon Scott, Henry V, Thomas Midgley, and John Wayne, the Duke. Now, JFK, one of the most famous presidents of modern times, a hero to many, perhaps as a result of his assassination and the massive conspiracy theories that grew out from that event. Everyone piled on with what you describe as the human tendency to see things that aren't there. What did we see? But more to the point, what didn't we see in JFK? Last summer, I went to that, that bit of America, you know, the East Coast, and, and I went to the Kennedy terrain, you know, um, Hyannis Point, where the Kennedy compound is. And I went to Boston, where the Presidential Library and Museum are, and I walked around I was just talking about Bowie and the three tons. It was like that to the power of 50. 
you felt like you were in a, a cathedral to a secular saint, really, if you think about it. I mean, you're not going to expect massive criticism or analysis <laughs> of someone in a museum that's been named after them. But I suppose you kind of think in a Western democracy that there would be something, you know, like some, like he didn't quite get, get up to mark. I had a very weird thing as I walked around that museum. I thought, I kind of want to believe it myself. If you're a liberal-minded person, who doesn't want to believe in the myth of John F. Coley. He's a smiley, handsome guy with great hair, uh, beautiful wife, beautiful children. They're all incredibly smart. Um, they're part of an extended clan who we have all kind of been brought up to believe wanted to do good in the world. You know, they wanted to end social and racial injustice. They wanted to, to create a better place. And who doesn't want to believe that? You know, it's a very attractive story but really it's a very attractive myth because while Kennedy said a lot of those things, he didn't do any of those things, particularly the stuff which many of us associate with him, you know, um, the civil rights acts and things like that, that was actually done by Lyndon B. Johnson, largely actually as a result of the assassination, the pressure grew for change. But in Kennedy's very brief presidency, he didn't really do much. I mean, really didn't do much at all. And I make the point in the book, I mean, th this is a very British analysis. In our heads, he was kind of there for quite some time, but actually he was president of the United States for a shorter period of time than Theresa May was prime minister of the UK. As a British person, it feels like a blink of an eye, but we have gone through a lot of prime ministers recently. <laughs> but anyway, the other thing that everybody kind of remembers about Kennedy is the whole Camelot stuff this idyllic moment in time where, where these handsome, beautiful people tried to build a better world. Um, and again, I didn't know this until I started researching the book, but in his lifetime, nobody mentioned Camelot. That was something that Jackie Kennedy came up with very shortly after his death. And it was based on a popular musical at the time, Camelot the Musical. Uh, which had like been a huge hit in, in New York uh, on Broadway. And in the era of social media, if someone tried to do that, they would be ridiculed. But in an era of huge deference and in the wake of this tragic event, a small number of people had control over the narrative. Uh, and Jackie Kennedy in particular had massive control over the narrative of what happened. And she molded the narrative posthumously. So she said, oh, his favorite record was Camelot. Um, and he loved this line from the song and all this kind of stuff. Uh, later on, Kennedy's own secretary said, that's nonsense. He hated music. <laughs> <laughs> his favorite song was, uh, da -da -da -da, won't you please come home? I can't remember what the, the name of the song is, but, but it, that's it. Yes, it was. <laughs> It was nothing to do with Camelot or whatever. But Jackie Kennedy had been a journalist. And as we know, journalists can manipulate narratives and arcs. And that's what she did very, very effectively. So we've all kind of grown up with a very gilded myth. Let's move on to another gilded myth. Che Guevara, very much a poster boy for global revolution. And this particular image, forgive my Spanish, Guerrero Heroica but he'd actually joined the Argentinian Peronist movement and turned out to be not so perfect after all, not so perfect a revolutionary after all. 
No, I mean, I put that chapter after Kennedy's chapter because I thought they fitted quite well together. They kind of almost mirrored each other. Of almost all the people in the book, actually him and John Wayne, weirdly. John Wayne was my childhood hero. And I found myself getting quite... When I did the audio book, I, like, like some blubbering fool, I almost kept breaking down as I was reading the John Wayne chapter because I found it very emotionally charged because he was such a big figure in my childhood. Anyway, um, che Guevara, in his youth, was heroic. He journeys out from his home in the, these famous motorcycle diaries that he wrote. There are flaws with them, and there are flaws with them as a human being, but there's flaws in all of us. Yeah, no, None of us are perfect. If you were to start digging into any of our lives, you'd find dirt. Otherwise, none of us would be very interesting. Che Guevara sets out on this journey, and he has this sort of St. Paul on the road to Damascus moment. Like I would say it was a religious experience, but the religion was communism. He, he saw social injustice. He saw poor people suffering. He came to view the, the United States as the devil that had caused it all. And he set out on his monomyth, you know, he set out on his quest to slay the dragon, which in this case was American capitalism. Now, whether you agree with that or not, there is something kind of heroic about it. The trouble is that from the moment he and the Castro brothers uh, overthrow the Batista regime in Cuba, um, they turn into the very monster that they set out to slay. Uh, they become horrendous, horrific, murderous human beings. From hero to saint, Mother Teresa. Now, the obvious question is, how and when does a saint become a hero when she's experienced what she called a core within a core, but she also had her night of darkness? How do these things apply to Mother Teresa and that narrative arc of the hero? One of the curious things in the book, particularly written by somebody whose real name is different to the name on the book, <laughs> is that a lot of the people in the book don't have the same name that we know them by. You know, that, So she was born Agnes. And um, as a young child, she had a terrible, I mean, really terrible childhood. Her father was murdered. Almost her entire extended family died in the Spanish flu of 1918 to 1920. There was no, nobody to look after them. She had, it was her mother and her sisters, and, and she didn't really have any options. But she loved storybooks about India as a kid. And she loved stories about uh, priests going out to India, monomyths, you know, just like the Ladybird books, religious monomyths of someone going out and, and making the world a better place. And she latched onto these stories, and I think probably also saw going to, to India as an escape. However, she then became a head teacher and like was had a successful career. However, in her 40s, on a train ride to Darjeeling, she had this call within a call when she decided that she had to go out and basically save the poor from, from you know, evil uh, and, and help the dying and the destitute. Unfortunately, as I point out in the book, this coincides almost exactly with her basically losing her faith in God. When I told this to a group of people recently in a room, there was an audible gasp in the room. I, I don't know whether I told the story better. As I said, she didn't really believe in God. I mean, the, the people reeled on their seats, but it's true. And we know it's true because she wrote a whole series of letters spanning decades about how she had lost her faith, how she could no longer feel Christ's spirit, how she could no longer feel God's presence. And one of the only ways she could feel it 
was through other people's suffering and pain. So in a curious way, she latched onto this mission almost as a means of feeling the faith she had had as a child. Other candidates in your book include Andy Warhol, Coco Chanel and John Wayne. But I want to know what the connection is between Henry V and Sir William Wentworth and the Bunyip aristocracy. So this is a story which I hope Australia will find Australia comes out of very well. <laughs> uh, one of my preoccupations in recent years has been the British monarchy, uh, which I know on paper we share. Obviously, that, that came much more to the fore with the death of the Queen uh, last year, uh, which I cover also in the book. Um, one of the uh, fascinating things about the British monarchy is finding an actual good British monarch. So in the book, I go back through time. I mean, the late queen, whatever one's Republican or monarchist sympathies, I think most people would agree she did a fairly good job. But if you go beyond her, um, it's a sort of ever-decreasing circle of talent, really. I mean, some of the monarchs in British history are just terrible people. And in addition to the monarchy in this country, much more so than in Australia, uh, we, we've had aristocracy. Uh, which continues. I mean, our, our recent slew of prime ministers, David Cameron, uh, Boris Johnson, and people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, I don't know if you know who he is in Australia, but these sort of aristocratic figures in Britain who continue to hold sway over this nation, uh, it's, it's a bit of a curse on the land. Um, and so I tell the story of Henry V and how he was kind of picked on by historians in recent years as an example of a truly great English king, except as anyone who reads the book will see, he was pretty much like the others. So you compare and contrast with what happened in Australia in 1853, um, when uh, Australians were beginning to move away from British dominance and set up your own legislatures and your own constitutions and things like that. And William Wentworth, uh, who I, I think most Australians will, will be aware of, so William Wentworth, famous figure, Mr. Wentworth, Sir William Wentworth, uh, who claimed that his father was the first free man to travel to Australia uh, but that that's probably not true his father had probably been done as a highwayman and had, had struck a deal Wentworth had quite a kind of high opinion of himself and, and and sort of looked on in awe at the British aristocracy and thought I'd like a piece of that um, and so he um, he came up with this idea for a legislature, I think it was in New South Wales, I'm pretty sure it was in New South Wales, that, that would be like a House of Lords. Um, well, it would be an Australian House of Lords. Uh, and you'd have earls and you'd have dukes and, and all of those kinds of things. Uh, so that you'd have an upper house. Largely, it looks like Wentworth latched onto this idea because he quite liked the idea of being an earl or a duke himself. Uh, enter stage left this uh, satirist called Daniel Dennehy, who was also uh, a politician, who gave a famous speech in which he compared um, Wentworth's idea to the Bunyip, a mythical outback creature who looked like something dreamed up by Lewis Carroll. Um, and um, he, he dubbed it the Bunyip aristocracy. 
and gave this speech where he ridiculed uh, the idea. He said, well, you're going to have an Earl of Wollongong, you're going to have a, a, a Duke of Mount Buggery and all this kind of thing. <laughs> and, and it was so widely mocked that poor old Wentworth had to ditch his idea completely, which is why Australia never had a House of Lords. In fact, Wentworth was so sort of cowed by the experience that he, he left Australia altogether and went and lived in Dorset in a town called Wimborne for the rest of his life, um, which is one reason why Australian, straight-talking Australians with their kind of far better, I would argue, sense of democracy never adopted these sort of airs and, and graces that we still have lingering in this country. Your book re-examines and reassesses history with the singular aim of getting to the truth, but that will certainly upset those who may have bought into the myths. It seems inevitable that you will have fielded some criticism. What has the reaction been? So with my first book, Fate History, which came out two years ago, um, they slapped my publisher in the UK, and I, I think in Australia as well, slapped a picture of Winston Churchill on the front, which... Um, in the UK provoked outrage. Boris Johnson had very much compared himself to Winston Churchill and Boris Johnson's popularity was still riding quite high. Uh, and enter this bloke with a fake name who um, starts telling people the truth about Winston Churchill, warts and all, yeah? Now lots of people have done that, but they tend to do it in big books that a lot of people don't read, you know? Maybe if you've got an interest in Churchill, you'll read a book on Churchill, but. I took apart all those um, famous quotes and joke stories about Churchill. I talked about what he really did in the war, which, you know, a lot of things he did in the war were great. But, you know, for example, he wasn't a fan of D-Day. He thought it was a really stupid idea. <laughs> uh, he, he thought Operation Overlord, he tried to stop Operation Overlord. He was a complicated, complex man with a lot of contradictory opinions because he lived a long time. So we all we all have contradictory opinions over time. But he has been turned again into a kind of secular political god in the UK, particularly for conservatives and sort of British nationalists. Um, and I took it apart. And I really got a lot of hate. Uh, conservative bloggers and think tanks and people coming after me writing uh, pretty nasty things, trying to pick fault with it. But what was really interesting was I'd really done my research. So when they were trying to pick apart my my research, it was over teeny, teeny, tiny details, like uh, an instant in Cuba where he got caught up in a gunfight and you could have read it as an implication that he had been involved in the gunfight. I didn't actually say that, but the way I had phrased it, you could have, I mean, it was the most extraordinary attempt to try and make me look like a fool when um, there were very few inaccuracies in it. This ended when the International Churchill Society, which is the society set up by his family in memory of him, wrote perhaps the most glowing review of my book, Fake History, which uh, anybody wrote, saying this is exactly how Churchill should be viewed. <laughs> <And> <laughs> which was a sort of slam dunk moment in my life, because I, I was actually terrified when I saw it come up. I thought, oh, here we go again. And they wrote this glowing review of, um, you know, yes, we should totally debunk those fake quotes. And yes, we should see him in the round and what's and all. That's how he would have liked to have been seen. So you get a very mixed bag. If you tread on people's toes too heavily, uh, you, do, you do get a bit of hate, yeah. 
Well, I certainly hope you make more friends than enemies with fake heroes. And Andrew, thank you so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Well, thanks very much for having me. This Good Reading Podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People Gift Card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.